Dylan Matthews is a senior correspondent and head writer for Vox. He's head of the division Future Perfect, which reports on stories about people and institutions trying to do the most good for the world. He's particularly interested in global health, pandemic prevention, anti-poverty efforts in the U.S. and abroad, economic policy and theory, and conflicts about the right way to do philanthropy. He reports on everything from furries to foreign aid to kidney donation and is a non-directed kidney donor himself. Welcome, Dylan. So excited to have you here today. Uh, So excited to be here, Lori. So we should probably address the furries before anything else. What do you think? So I'd be a cat or something with a cool tail, maybe a fox. But if I was a cat, I would never use a litter box. Never. (laughs) (laughs) I'm always game to talk about furries. I mean, look, there was uh, I wrote about them after um, there was a furry convention, I think, in Pittsburgh. And there was a chlorine leak that was was potentially attacking them there. And so far as I'm aware, no one has really figured out who did the chlorine attack. And look, if there's a chemical weapons attack against any community, furries or otherwise, I'm, I'm going to be interested. <laughs> okay, well, I do have a million questions about furries, especially how they affect the children of our world today. But let's <laughs> talk about a few other things. Dylan, in the work you do every day, you're always asking the question, what are the most effective ways we can spend time or money? Can you tell us a little bit about Future Perfect and the work you do there? Sure. Uh, so Future Perfect is a section that we started at Fox under uh, our, our then editor, Albert Ventura, and, and myself back in 2018. And it's been an unusual section of Fox in that it's always been philanthropically funded. And so we were able to step back a bit from the news cycle and from, from trying to make money from ads and, and maximize eyeballs. The basic philosophy behind Future Perfect is that there's a lot of things that are really important in the world that the media is bad at covering. So global health is a, is a big example of that. It affects billions of people's lives. Uh, it's literally a matter of, of life and death. In some moments like COVID or the Ebola outbreak in 2014, people pay some attention to it. But the sort of day to day, what are we going to do about malaria? What are we going to do about tuberculosis? is not something that's that's covered with great frequency. And so the the idea for Future Perfect was to try to find stories like that, things like global health or, or animal welfare or threats of human extinction that are, are really, really important, but don't get on the agenda very often. And to use the freedom that we get from, from being philanthropically funded to try to write about them without being nervous that, that no one's going to care and to take swings on stuff like that. So it started as a pretty small section. There were just about four of us in the beginning. Um, and now we are, we're about 10 or 11 people. Yeah, it's a, a really cool little sandbox to, to experiment with writing about different topics. Wow. Congratulations on your growth. Thanks so much. In last month's podcast with Abby Marsh, we talked about how the news is incentivized to report on what's wrong and what's bad. So Future Perfect is kind of taking away some of that noise we hear and see on the news and amplifying some of what's really important and the things that we don't always hear about, perhaps elevating some of the topics that aren't popular but should be? I don't think what they're reporting on is, is noise. Um, and I think sometimes things that are, are the, the focus of a lot of coverage are genuinely extremely important. War in Ukraine is, is extremely important. Like We are not wasting resources covering that a lot. What we're arguing, though, is, is that there are some things that are under-amplified, that those are correctly amplified, but there might be things that could use a little more amplification. Mm, I like that distinction. Thanks for, for saying that. Yeah. 
And many of these initiatives are rooted in the concept of effective altruism, or EA. Can you explain what EA is? Sure. So EA is a term that they came around about uh, a decade ago that has sort of since grown into something of a social movement. And I think the definition that the Center for Effective Altruism uses is that it's about using reason and evidence to do the most good possible. And that sounds very vague, but I think it's specifically about pairing arguments that people should be caring more morally about the impact their life has, that they should be thinking more about what they can do in terms of donating to charity, how they can spend their careers uh, helping other people, um, what other actions they can take, uh, like kidney donation, which which we're going to talk about a lot more, can help other people. Uh, and pairing that with a belief that there's sort of a wide difference in effectiveness between different ways of helping people, that uh, $1,000 given to the worst global health charity could be not just worse, but like a hundredfold worse than than $1,000 given to the best. And so it's an interesting movement to me because it's asking a really sort of fundamental question about how we should allocate our, our, our time and attention. And it's, I think, especially interesting to me as a journalist because uh, I have this resource of, of what I cover, my bandwidth as a reporter and writer. And I have to figure out how to use that resource. And I was kind of unhappy with trying to use it passively and just write about whatever came came up to me. Um, and I, what appealed to me about EA is that it, it provided kind of a theory of attention of what, what might be most important. And so the things I listed that Future Perfect is really interested in, things like animal welfare and global health and, and extinction risks, they may not seem to have a lot in common, but they're all things that that I think people in the AA movement who tried to think about prioritization came out the other side thinking are really important and really underinvested in. Um, and I think that's that's been the, the main thing I've gotten from EA as a movement is trying to think carefully about priorities. Mm. I'm just learning about it and it's helping me think yeah. carefully about priorities as well. It's 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 beautiful. So can you share an example of a decision that you've made to do the most good? So what projects or initiatives have you chosen over others and why using EA as a backdrop of explaining that decision-making process? Sure. So I think a, a good concrete example is the Giving What We Can pledge. So the first EA group was this group called Giving What We Can, which is organized around a, a pledge that people take to donate at least 10% of their income to an effective charity. And so there's two components there. There's the at least 10%, which is reminiscent of tithing and, and religion, but is also more than the vast majority of people donate to, to charity and more than I would have donated to charity, I'm sure, without that kind of commitment. Uh, I, I took the pledge, I think, in 2016 or thereabouts. Um, but then the highly effective part, I think, is, has been the more influential one for me. That I think without that, I would have sort of picked the first charity that I thought looked kind of good. And because of institutions like GiveWell uh, that, that can do some evaluation of, of charities for effectiveness, they, they came to the conclusion that things like distributing bed nets to fight malaria, distributing preventative drugs to fight malaria, deworming programs, incentives for people to get vaccinated, that these can, can save lives for maybe two or $3,000 per life saved. Um, and that's that's a lot more bang for your buck than the vast majority of, of charitable endeavors. 
And so I think I like the giving what we can pledge as an example, because it's it's both asking more of you monetarily that, that 10% is, is a big ask. And it's asking that you do that sort of carefully and with thought and that not just throw the money around willy nilly, but but try to put it in a place where, where you can be, be saving as many lives as you can. For someone who's new to this, how do you find these charities that are so incredibly highly effective in doing the most good? You mentioned GiveWell. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so GiveWell is uh, an organization based in San Francisco that has been around uh, for the last 15 years. And they, they're a charity evaluator that's very opinionated. So things like Candid, which was formerly known as Charity Navigator, are very unopinionated. They're basically like, are you doing fraud? Are you, uh, do you have insane overhead? And GiveWell tried to do things a little differently and say, what if we tried to quantify how many lives dollar given to a given organization or maybe a, a million dollars to, to use a, a more plausible number uh, given to a, a given charity will save. And so it tends to, to recommend global health charities because that's a place where you can save a lot of human lives for a relatively low amount of money. And I think they're very good at surfacing relatively small charities often that that I otherwise wouldn't hear about and that are doing really good work. Things like Helen Keller International has a program for vitamin A supplementation. I never in a million years would have thought to give money to that, but but people give well, ran the numbers and, and found it very promising. And there are other evaluators for, for things other than global health. Um, there's something called animal charity evaluators, uh, which tries to do something similar with charities that try to help, especially farmed animals, but also animals outside farms in some cases to try to Im- improve their well-being, prevent the worst sort of cruelties of factory farming, uh, reduce the number of animals who are hurt by factory farming, that kind of thing. And so it's it's hard to, to uh, I can imagine an evaluator that tries to, to do both the animals and humans under one rubric. At that point, it gets quite difficult to compare. Um, but but I try to check in with resources like that to, to think about where my money could do the most good. And it's often places that you wouldn't think. Often, yeah. It's it's often not the big names you would think of. Yeah, it makes me think of, you know, like after there's a hurricane and tons of damage or somewhere and there's all these like, we need immediate help and immediate funding. Um, and I know that that's not always set up so that the money goes to the places that it needs to. So you would use EA to decide, okay, there's this catastrophe that happened somewhere in the world. What's the best way to put my time and money into helping that problem if that's the problem that I want to choose? Yeah, that's that's the basic the basic question that it's trying to ask and and that it's it's poking people to ask. Does morality play into the concept of effective altruism? Yes, principal founder of the movement was this guy Toby Ord, who was is literally a moral philosopher. Um, and a lot of the early people in the movement were were moral philosophers, and I think. The idea that this is an ob- obligation or, or something that that you have really strong reasons to do is is grounded very much in a sense that people should be should be acting morally and also that acting morally is about more than than not hurting other people that you have sort of mm. affirmative duties to help other people. So, yeah, I, I think altruism itself is is a moral concept and and is about sort of helping other people because it's good to help them, not just because it's instrumentally useful to yourself. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think of it as, as sort of a moral reform movement at, at core. I love it. 
Can you tell us a little bit about how your work with EA essentially put you on the path of donating a kidney? Did Vox suggest that you donate a kidney and document it? Or did this decision just kind of complement the work that you were already doing and the belief system that you've created for yourself? Um, okay, so Vox very much did not suggest I donate a kidney. <laughs> and I want to like underline that a million times because like that would be illegal. I was totally um, kidding. Under, under... <laughs> <laughs> um, but... So I, I I knew about kidney donation before before I heard about EA. Uh, there was an article in in the New Yorker called "The Kindest Cut" by uh, by Loris McFarquhar about people who were were non directed kidney donors, and it seemed I think the things that appealed to me about EA also appealed to me about that when I read it. There, you know, it's it's just as giving ten percent of your income to save someone's life doesn't seem like that big an ask, and the donating a kidney to save someone's life didn't seem like that big an ask. What I, I would say is that that EA accelerated the process. The first person I met in effective altruism was Alexander Berger, who's now co-CEO of, of the foundation Open Philanthropy, and at the time was working at GiveWell, and he had donated a kidney as a senior in college. And so I talked to him a lot about what that process was like and, and his reasons for doing it. And then at the first sort of EA global conference I went to, I met a guy named Josh Morrison, who then and now was part of this group called Weightless Zero uh, that advocates for for living donors, um, in particular living kidney donors, and who was a, a living kidney donor himself. And it was me and Josh really that sort of set me on the path of of trying to donate. That that I donated about a year after we met, and so I, I think it was it was an idea I was familiar with before effective altruism, but. It took meeting people in the movement who who thought this was a really good thing to do and it could be kind of a social support for me to actually ultimately go through with it. Wow. So the first thing you had to do was evaluate the risks to donating. Tell me a little bit about that and how you viewed the risk and the personal sacrifice involved in donating a kidney. Yeah. So I, I recommend Josh's organization, Weightless Zero. They, they have a good page of resources on studies of risks for donating. The first cut risk I thought about was just death of death and surgery. It is very rare, but it does happen. Major surgery is not something to to go into lightly. The best evidence I could find on that was that it was a rate of of maybe is it three and a hundred thousand, three and ten thousand. I know those are tenfold different, but um it was very, very low in any case. And about a third of that if you don't have hypertension, um, which I didn't. So that seemed very, very low and and not didn't really play a big role in my decision making. We looked this up after our interview and found that the chance of dying while donating a kidney in the U.S. is 0.03%. For perspective, it's about as safe as giving birth. The bigger risk I thought about was kidney failure later in life, where there does seem to be some evidence that you're at slightly elevated risk for that if you if you donate a kidney. But the absolute risk is not very high. I think it's like 1%. And if it does happen, um, the way that a lot of transplant lists work is that you you get preferential treatment if you've previously donated. And so um, there's there was sort of a, a compensation for, for taking on that increased risk. So, so if this happens, they're going to take care of me by providing me with a living donor or deceased donor, depending on where you donated. Is that is that what you mean? Yeah, that that's basically what I was thinking is, you know, uh, worst comes to worst, I'll have a leg up because I donated. 
So just as I have a slightly increased risk because I donated, I have an increased chance of getting a kidney because I donated. And so I thought of those as basically offsetting. Um, I think the biggest cost I thought about was just sort of time and especially sort of the burden it places on family members that I did not think it was a very big deal, but um, I think it was a very big deal to the family members. And my dad came down for, for a week and uh, he and my my girlfriend stayed around the hospital and, and helped me get better. That was that was a lot to ask of them. And and I didn't want to do that lately. But I also knew that they they knew this was something that was important to me and that they they were supportive of. They thought it was a good thing to do, even if they thought it was a little extreme. And so I I overcame that with their support too. Um, so I think those were the the risks that I was kind of thinking of uh, or costs I was thinking of and in, in, um, weighing how and, and whether to do this. And none of them seemed equal to the likely consequence of someone adding six or more years to their life because they are off dialysis, can live their life, can travel, um, are not sort of tied to this machine uh, to keep going. And and so when I saw a sort of big benefit, small risks to me, that that made the decision pretty easy. And then how would you measure the value of donation? So you're comparing risk to value or outcome. Are you measuring how many people get a kidney as a result of your donation? Is the value of someone who starts a chain of donations higher than the value of someone who doesn't start a chain? Like what are we looking at the financial benefit, benefits to the patients and family? I want to know how you measured the benefits. Yeah, I mean, I, I it was important to me to start a chain. And I don't think chains only work if uh, there's a bunch of other people who are willing to donate to you. And so I don't think when you start a, a chain, you you get full credit for, for what everybody else did. Like their their <laughs> donations are 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 saving lives in an equal measure. Um, but I do think you 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 give them an assist, maybe, um, and catalyst. you know, a, an assist catalyst, is not right. Like it's the catalyst. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, in, in basketball, an assist is not the same as as a basket, but it's good. Uh, <laughs> it, it helps your it helps your stats. So I do. I, it was important to me to do that, and I do think it increases the value of your donation. I tried to think of it in terms of of life extension. That we talk a lot about saving lives, obviously you can't prevent death. Everyone dies. Um, the most you can do is extend somebody's life. Um, and I think I was trying to think about that carefully also because a lot of people with kidney failure are, are older and, and have other health needs. And so I think I was also trying to sort of steal myself of if someone gets gets a kidney and it doesn't take or they have other health problems and they, they die pretty soon thereafter, that my my goal isn't to keep them alive forever. My goal is to to give them a, a little more time to be alive. And and the studies I read suggested that something like six to nine years of extended life per donation is is a reasonable number. And that's a lot of that's a lot of time. That's many years to be with kids or grandkids if you have them. To to be with friends. To do the things you think are important with life in in your life. And then sort of if you tack on some years of life that you're, you're helping add through, through chains, that makes it an even better deal and, and makes the, the benefits outweigh the, the cost even more. But I still think it would have been worth it even if there was no chain and there was just one person. Those benefits are still 
more profound than than I think the risks I was taking on. So I, I shared your view. I didn't have the effect of altruism, you know, knowledge when yeah. I made the decision to donate, but I can't think of another example where the benefit is so great compared to the cost. And maybe I'm lazy, but when I look at like things I can do, whether it be with my money, my time, or my physical body, I want to do the things that take the least amount of effort, but yield the, the greatest possible good. What other examples can you think of that are comparable to donating a kidney in terms of that? I don't know about comparable, but yeah, I mean, I think I think donating to, to life-saving charities is pretty low cost, pretty high benefit. Another thing that I do, I think, I don't think it's quite as good as donating a kidney, but I think it's pretty good, is I volunteer for called the VITA program um, that, that in, in the U.S., almost everyone's relying on, on paid tax preparers. And the IRS has this program for people who can't afford tax preparers to get their taxes done uh, for free by volunteers. And, and so I do that. My wife does that. And I think I partly did it because I've written a lot about tax policy. I find taxes really interesting. Um, and, uh, and so there's, there's things I find fun and interestingly challenging about doing it. But I think the bigger reason is that you're, you're giving a few hours of your time and you're often helping people get tax refunds that can total in the thousands of dollars. And I think it's it's a little harder to say, so, you know, would they would they have gotten that refund anyway? If you weren't there, like what is each volunteer doing? But you're increasing the capacity of this this volunteer organization that has very limited capacity to to do people's taxes and to to get them these massive refunds. And so a few hours of my time to get thousands of dollars and maybe sort of hundreds of thousands of dollars if you add up all the returns you work on, that feels pretty good. And and maybe more conservatively, uh, if you just add up all the, the money they would have paid to a, a tax preparer, um, you're still saving a whole lot of money for for not a lot of, of your time. So I don't know that that's as good, but I think that was another case where I came to the conclusion that volunteering was a pretty good bet that I could I could use my time more effectively than if I, I don't know, like just got another job and use that time to work and then donate the money. Wow, that's not the answer I was expecting at all <laughs> to have to do with taxes. So is that who's that organization available to? Um, anyone uh, who lives and works in the United States, it's organized through local nonprofits here in D.C. Uh, ours is called Community Tax Aid, but the IRS has groups it works with across the country. And so I would I'd search for VITA, V-I-T-A, and uh, the IRS has a directory of programs in different areas. Thanks for sharing that. So I think I've heard you refer to yourself as an EA kidney donor, like it's kind of its own label. What does that mean? And how many people out there are identifying as an EA kidney donor? Oh, man, I don't know. I feel like what I meant by that must have been just I, I identify as an EA and I also donated a kidney. But it's true that I think like a greater than average share of EAs, I think, have have donated. Still not by any means a majority or maybe even like 10 or 20 percent. But it's not unusual to meet people at conferences who've, who've donated. And I also like it because... It's kind of a, a way of of showing your your that you take these ideas seriously. But beyond being a good thing to do, I think 
one criticism that people often have of effective altruism is that it's it doesn't ask much of people and that it, it sort of is a way for people in in the global north to think of themselves as good people because they're they're giving some of their money to a good cause and i think it's good for people in the movement to sort of send costly signals that they really take this stuff seriously yeah. and going through with a surgery is is a pretty costly signal it's a, a pretty good like i'm not bullshitting and i don't know anyone who's donated on a lark everyone thought it was really important and so i i think i've found myself making common cause with eas who've donated more than other kinds of eas because i think it's it's a shared experience and it's also sort of a shared way of interpreting these ideas sometimes I describe it as the only decision in my life that i'm 100 percent sure was the right one um and and there's something i think very emotionally meaningful about that um in a life full of uncertainty and i i think i i do value the camaraderie of donors and the camaraderie and the people who are able to identify as a donor and and what that means when we all sit at a table together it's pretty damn cool yeah it's a very neat feeling and and it's definitely like a very important thing that you have in common and i've i've found those to be really meaningful relationships so if people are interested in learning more about EA, where can they learn more? I always refer people to the Center for Effective Altruism. I've also written a couple of stories about the, the state of the movement on Vox. Um, and you can, can see all of Future Perfect stories at vox.com slash future perfect. Wonderful. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Uh, no, I feel like we covered the gamut. Great. Thanks so much for coming today, Dylan. Thanks so much for having me. If you're looking to learn more about how you can find the best ways to help others and put that into practice, Dylan mentioned a ton of great resources in this podcast episode. Check out my show notes for links. Donor Diaries is produced by Rob Lee with Maitre River Productions. If you love this podcast, please make sure to subscribe and rate it so you can get more. You can also follow us on Facebook. Just search the Donor Diaries podcast. We'll be back April 5th with another great guest. I'm your host, Lori Lee. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thank mm-hmm. you.